All right, good evening, everyone. We're here for the final session of uh, Acts chapter 1 through 12, and I think we're going to make it to the end here this evening. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. We ask your blessing on us as we finish up this evening. Thank you for the time we've had to study this first section of the book of Acts. We ask your blessing upon each one who has persevered through this, that this study we've done in the Word of God, that through the Spirit you might uh, enlighten our minds and hearts to the truths of Scripture and help us, therefore, to be more obedient Christians, more faithful, more useful for you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're all for six weeks. Uh, the Wednesday night program doesn't begin until January the 20th, January the 20th, which is six weeks, and we'll be I'll be teaching Acts 13 uh, the next session. So that'll, that'll be in six weeks. I was asked to ask if there's any men who can help after uh, this after our class tonight. They're setting up tables or some stuff. I don't know chairs, tables for the ladies' uh, dinner on Friday night. Friday night. So they'd like to have some help if anyone's available. I'm too old. Ken's too old. Ken's got a bad knee. <laughs> then he's got a bad back. <laughs> I don't think anybody in here. I don't. I don't know if anybody. Okay, here, Bill. Here, he's 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 good. He's good shape. And Aaron, Aaron, Aaron is Aaron is too ugly. Too ugly. They'll take they'll take him. They don't care. And Ken back here, he's, he's in good shape. He can uh, do lazy. <laughs> <Do lazy. laughs> okay, ladies, I guess it's up to us. Speak for yourself. All right, we're looking at uh, last time the we're looking at advances of the gospel in Palestine and Syria, nine through twelve, finishing up through chapter twelve. Last time we looked at the uh, the conversion of Cornelius in uh, uh, the end of chapter ten, and then chapter ten, and then then the uh, Peter coming back to Jerusalem in chapter eleven, and then we notice at the end of chapter eleven, beginning in verse twenty-seven, that there was a prophecy given in Antioch by a prophet, a New Testament prophet named Agabus. He'll come up again later in the book of Acts when he prophesies, when Caesarea, he prophesied that, that Paul is going to be taken in chains if he goes to Jerusalem. He'll be in prison. And so he prophesies that there's going to be this famine. And so um, we're told there at the end that uh, in verse 29, the disciples as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And we said, remember, this was Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. We were just trying to keep that straight, his first visit, because this is going to come up again when we get to Acts 13 through 28. We'll be trying to uh, track Paul's uh, missionary journeys with with the book of Acts a little closer there and so we'll be seeing his uh, his uh, uh, trips to Jerusalem his first one was in Acts 9 
uh, after, three years after his conversion, he says it was three years after his conversion, he went to he went to Jerusalem and stayed 15 days. And then Acts 11, this is this visit we're talking about right now. And this visit is talked about a little more in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul says 14 years later, he went up again. Uh, now we come to this uh, pretty much final section, divine intervention on behalf of the Jerusalem church, chapter 12, verses 1 through 23. Now it says in verse time, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. As I say, this is a general chronological marker. Herod died in A.D. 44. This is Herod Agrippa I. He died in A.D. 44. Uh, So this is a general event. The events here, as I say in chapter 12, probably took place between 11, 19, 26, and verse 27, during the time they're coming down for this famine. So if you read the end of chapter 11, it says they sent Barnabas and Saul, and at the end of chapter 12, then verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch from Jerusalem. So this is a general chronological marker here. It was about this time. It was during this time. Luke is going to tell us something here about Herod and the church and a little section here about Peter and and so forth during this particular time before he finally uh, finishes off and, and uh, gets us back to Paul. So this is, as I say, probably between 1926 and 27 through 30. And we're told here about King Herod. And as I say here, this is uh, Herod Agrippa I. And on page 37, you have a chart there um, that tries to give the, uh, the uh, ancestry of Herod Agrippa I. It talks on the, on the far left there is Herod, King Herod the Great. So there's King Herod the Great on the left. Herod the Great... I don't know if you remember or not, he was the king, you remember, who's mentioned in the gospel accounts because he's the king that tried to destroy the infants, you remember, and uh, the wise wise men and so forth came to him and so on, King Herod the Great. He uh, He was actually not a Jew by birth himself. He was an Idumea. Idumea is an area just south of Judah. And... um, in the second century BC, um, we talked a little bit about this. Back in the in, in the in the fourth century BC, the the uh, famous uh, Greek general Alexander the Great, great leader Alexander the Great, conquered pretty much the known world by about 300 BC, 330 BC. He had conquered everything from Spain all the way to India. So from Spain to India. Alexander the Great conquered all that, and after he uh, after he died, the kingdom was divided up among four of his leaders, four of his generals. It's usually thought, and uh, one of these one of these was one of these generals, and one of these families were called the Seleucids. Sometimes they're called the Syrians, and they ruled from Antioch. They ruled this entire area. They ruled Palestine. They ruled uh, Jerusalem. They ruled the Jews and everything. 
The Jews eventually rebelled against this. In the around 167, the Jews rebelled, and uh, a fellow by the name of uh, of uh, Judas Maccabeus, actually his father started this. Who, he started this, and then he, his sons, his five sons, joined in. The first leader was Judas Maccabeus. Uh, Maccabeus probably means something like the hammer, Judas the hammer. But they uh, they uh, rebelled, and they were able to throw off the Syrians or the Seleucids. They eventually recaptured Jerusalem, and. Um, they, uh, when they recaptured Jerusalem, they, uh, they, during this time, there hadn't been any uh, ceremonies going on in the temple. There were, where there wasn't any lighting of uh, any lamps or anything. There was nothing really going on. So they were going to restore the temple services, restore these uh, things, these sacrifices and services that were going on. And so uh, when they recaptured this, they uh, they didn't have any consecrated oil. There was there was just enough oil for one day, and you know to, to light the, the lamps for one day. But according to the story, a miracle occurred, and they were able to keep this going for eight days while they had this oil consecrated and so forth. And they celebrate that event. And they call it Hanukkah, which just started. December the 6th, so the Jews are in the middle of Hanukkah right now, and every night they light a, a, a lamp, light a candle, light something, um, some sort of flame, a menorah, you know, some, an eight-candle candlestick or whatever, and celebrate this uh, miraculous thing. So this is a feast of the Jews. It's not an Old Testament feast. It's not something prescribed in the Old Testament at all. Uh, it's not required by Moses or anything. It's not one of the festivals there, but it's just a, an additional feast, Hanukkah, that they celebrate, and they give themselves presents. I went to school with a lot of Jews, and I was very jealous because they get present every night of Hanukkah. You know, I mean, this is what, what happened. What happened to us? You know, one one day we get, you know, and they get every night. You know, every 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 night of Hanukkah, they got they got something going on there. So. So that, because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, it falls at different times. It may fall in late November, right on through to December and so forth, and it varies from year to year. Occasionally, it'll occur on the 25th, the day we celebrate, but it varies. It starts the 6th this year and go for eight days. So uh, these uh, Jews, uh, Simon Maccabe- uh, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, they threw off the Syrians. They established a Jewish kingdom there. And that Jewish kingdom lasted until the Romans came in. When the general Pompey came in in 64 B.C., he conquered Jerusalem. And that was the end of the Jewish kingdom there that lasted for about 100 years. And uh, the Romans controlled that. Um, the when, when this Jewish kingdom was there, the Jews had conquered all the territory around them. And the area south of them called Idumea, they conquered those people and they made them be circumcised. They converted, they made them by force become Jews. And the the head of Idumea then was a man by the name Antipater. And he was forced to be circumcised and his family, and his son was Herod the Great. And so Herod is a Jew by, you know, by religion in a sense. He's not an ethnic Jew. But... Uh, 
he is named king of the Jew, king of Judea, by the Romans. So in AD 40, he becomes the king of Judea. And the Jews, they kind of accept him, they don't kind of. Some Jews accept him, some don't. He's not really Jew by ethnicity. He's not he's really an Idumean. But he's not totally rejected. He's not totally accepted. It takes him to 37 B.C. to actually gain control. The Roman legions come in, he comes in. And so he establishes this great kingdom from 37 B.C. up till, you know, 4 B.C. Here, as you can see by the dates there on the chart that I've given you there. And he's quite a guy. Ten wives, Aaron had. Ten wives. Two of them with the same name, you know, Mary Amby. Two of them with the same name. He actually, his first wife, he married one of the daughters of these Maccabean people, you know. So he kind of got into the royal family of the Jews there with that. And uh, he uh, built all kinds of things. He doubled the size of the Temple Mount. We talked about that. You remember that Temple Mount? A hundred, a thousand yards, about 1,500 yards, 30-some acres. He doubled that and made it what it is today and so forth. So he did a lot of building projects around Jerusalem and so forth. And uh, But he was very suspicious. He killed off one of his wives, three of his sons. He couldn't decide what to do with his kingdom. He had six <coughs> wills drawn up. At the end, the emperor, finally at the end, the Roman emperor had to decide about the wills, who's going to inherit and who's not. So you can see on that chart, if you look at the second column to the right of Herod, after he died, the kingdom was divided among three of his sons, and they have the little crown there, Herod Philip II, uh, and then Archelaus, and then Herod Antipas. So there were three sons that actually, in the will, the final will, ruled. Now, none of them got control over the entire territory. Herod Philip, as you can see there, Herod Philip II, he got control of uh, Tetrarch of Iturea and Tacronitis. And if you kind of see on the map, you can see that's that northern territory up there. Then Herod Antipas, he was Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And he comes in contact with, Jew, with, with Jesus. He's mentioned as the husband of Herodias who put John the Baptist to death, Herod Antipas. Uh, so there's Archelaus, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip. Archelaus was the governor was the uh, governor of Judea, uh, Iturea and Samaria. But you notice if you look at Archelaus there, the second guy, it says four B to four BC to six AD eighty six. He was so bad that the Roman emperor had to get rid of him and brought in governors to rule in his place. That's why you have Pontius Pilate there. Pilate is there because Archelaus was so terrible that he brought in his own Roman governors to rule Judea. So that's where Jesus is coming up against Pilate and so forth like that. Um, well, the, we're interested in the third column there, Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I. You can see he's the son of Aristobulus, a guy who didn't rule, but he's in the royal line of Herod. And on the notes I mentioned there on page 36, he was the grandson of Herod the Great, the son of Aristobulus. He grew up in Rome, became friends with Caligula and Claudius. Now, Caligula was the third you know, emperor. There's Augustus, 
who became emperor. Remember, Rome was a republic, basically, for most of its existence. And then Julius Caesar, you remember, and so forth, his dictatorship. Then the first really emperor, Augustus Caesar. Then Tiberius. And then this Caligula. His real name was Gaius Julius Caesar, the same as Julius Caesar. But they called him Caligula, which means something like little boots. He used to go around in a uniform, uh, dressed like a soldier. And he would go around with his father, who was a famous soldier, and, and, he, and he had a little soldier uniform. So they called him Little Boots, something like that. But he became a ruler, and Herod, Herod the Great, and his sons, Herod sent his sons back to Rome to be educated. And his grandsons went back to Rome. So Herod Agrippa I, though he was in, he was in the line of Herod, he grew up in Rome. He grew up with the royalty in Rome. He grew up with with uh, with Claudius, who was the next emperor, and uh, he grew up with uh, Caligula. Well, Caligula was a crazy emperor. He was evil beyond belief. Crazy, evil, despicable. You can't think of enough words to describe him. He, he killed people just for the fun of it, committed incest with his sisters, tried to make his horse a Roman consul. He killed off just bunches of people. He thought his family was against him. And he killed off everybody except his uncle. He had an uncle by the name of Claudius. And Claudius uh, is the one I mentioned here, friends with Cl- uh, Caligula and Claudius. Claudius was, uh, was older than Caligula, and he was his uncle. And he kept him around. He thought he was kind of a fool. Claudius had had poorly polio when he was young and he kind of drooled at the mouth and he didn't walk very well but he's actually a pretty bright guy but uh, finally the everybody got tired of Caligula and so the Praetorian Guard, the special soldiers who guard the emperor, they assassinated uh, Caligula killed him uh, probably with the help of the senate and they and these soldiers uh, they found Claudius hiding behind some curtains some of these Praetorian guards wanted to kill Claudius, and some of them didn't. They spirited him off, took him off. They, 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 uh, they decided, some of these Praetorian guards said, we're going to make him our emperor because we can kind of control him and so forth. So, but the Senate didn't want to do this. The man who negotiated the settlement, settlement was Herod Agrippa I right here, this man we're talking about here in Acts chapter 12. He had grown up in Rome. He was a friend of Caligula. He was a friend of Claudius. He was a very influential guy in Rome. And so when the Senate and the Praetorian Guard couldn't agree, he's the guy, according to Josephus anyway, who kind of negotiated back and forth, back and forth. And so for that reason, when uh, Caligula had given him some land, but when Claudius came in, you look at the land there, if you can see the map of Herod Agrippa I, it's pretty much the same amount of land as Herod the Great. It's pretty much the same land that Solomon and David had. So he he was well received by the Romans and accepted as sort of one of them, though in a sense the king, you know, of Judea and so forth. He has the title King of Judea. I mentioned on page thirty-eight that he, he received various parts of the kingdom in thirty-nine when Herod Antipas was banished, when Claudius became emperor. Uh, he received Judea and Samaria and so forth. From 41 to 44, he ruled over the entire kingdom of his grandfather, Herod the Great. He closely observed Jewish customs and won the favor of the Jews. 
When he was in Rome, he acted like a Roman. When he was in Jerusalem, he acted like a Jew, and he observed Jewish customs and things like that. Uh, he was able to talk Caligula out of his insane plan of erecting a statue of himself as a god in the Jerusalem temple. So one of the things Caligula, remember I said how crazy he was, right at the end of his life, he wanted to put a, put a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple uh, so people could worship him there. And Agrippa supposedly, according to Josephus, talked him out of that. Uh, he moved, uh, when Agrippa was given control of Judea in 41, he moved his headquarters to Jerusalem, which pleased the Jews. Caesarea was still the provincial capital, but he, re- he began to rebuild the city's northern wall, fortifications. His popularity, as I say, was enhanced by the fact that his grandmother, Mary was a Hasmonean. That is, she was of that Maccabean descent. And according to Josephus, they mourned his death here when he dies in this chapter. Now, verse 2, it says, This Herod Agrippa I had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that we're very familiar with John, the Apostle John, and so forth. But he had James, his brother, put to death with a sword. Now here's James, the first apostle to be martyred. I say martyred because Judas has died. But remember, Judas hanged himself, and Judas was replaced. And remember, Peter argues in chapter 1... Peter, they're replacing Judas because Judas had apostatized. He had departed from the faith. But now, when apostles die, they don't replace them. There's no mention in the book of Acts or in history of apostles dying and and somebody replacing them. So there's no apostles today, of course. Verse 3, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So, as I say here, uh, Peter didn't. Uh, uh, Peter was spared because the feast came on the Passover, the day of Passover, and then the feast of unleavened bread, which follows the next week. Uh, Peter was spared from being killed until after the. The feast was over after this week, eight days were over. And Peter is guarded pretty heavily here, you notice. It says he was guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Um, This may be, he may be remembering what happened the last time. Remember chapter 5 when uh, the apostles were put in prison and an angel came and got, you know, got, you know, and and they couldn't figure out what happened. What happened? To, how did these people get out of prison? So, so they may have taken extra precautions. So they're guarding Peter here with a lot of soldiers, aren't they? Four squads of four soldiers each, uh, probably chained to two of them at a time. Um, probably, you know, it could have been most likely in that fortress Antonia we talked about. Remember, the Romans had a fortress on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And uh, this is probably where he would have been kept at, as best we can estimate and guess at. So, verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, remember that. That's a good, that's a good verse to remember later on when you see what happens. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Uh, the night... The, the night before Herod was to 
bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, and the angel, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter said to himself and said, uh, then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying, as we saw back there in verse 5. Now, I just mentioned here early Christians, of course, met in houses. They didn't have any buildings to meet in. It's hard to say when the first church buildings were built. Um, they weren't too many built, at least. You know, some people say there were some built in the second century. There may have been. Certainly, they were built in the third century, in the 200s, maybe occasionally. But not too often until Christian, Christianity became a legal religion in the fourth century, after Constantine and so forth. Pretty much, they met for the most part in houses uh, because Christianity being an illegal religion and a persecuted religion for quite a much of that time. Um, as I say here, it was probably chosen because of it was large. They met at Mary's house. It has a vestibule or opening on the street. Verse 13 says that Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant came named Rhoda came to the door. So they had this outer entrance or vestibule, an intervening court, probably it's a rear living quarter. So this was probably a larger house. And this is uh, Mary's house, who is called uh, the mother of John, also called Mark. Remember, we talked about this possibility before when we said when, the, when Jesus uh, had departed and they were waiting in Jerusalem, uh, we were trying to figure out where they were at and what house they were at. You know, where were they at? Where is this place? The Bible doesn't tell us. And we thought one possibility could be maybe this place. We don't, we don't know for sure where it could be. But notice it's John also called Mark. Technically, it's wrong to say John Mark. I have a brother-in-law whose name is John Mark Fulton. But I should tell him his name is all messed up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's like saying Saul Paul. You wouldn't say Saul Paul, you know. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with saying John Mark, but, you know. It's, it's just that John is his Hebrew name and Mark is his Roman or Gentile name. So it's very common for Jews, very common for Jews during this period, uh, who were to have a Gentile name for their child and a, a Hebrew name. This was just common, everyday fare. We see it a number of times in the book of Acts. Of course, the Apostle Paul had a full Roman name. We talked about Paulus. And then he had this Hebrew name, Saul, and so forth. And that's what 
that's what the Luke is indicating here. His is the mother of John, that would be a Hebrew name, also called Mark. Marcus would be a Latin or Roman name or Greek name. And so uh, just calling your attention to his Hellenistic name. Well, Peter knocks at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, why she didn't open the door, I don't know. And they say, that's wonderful. We have been praying earnestly that Peter would be <laughs> released. <laughs> and thank God he's answered our prayers. No, they say, you're out of your mind, lady. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're out of your mind, they said. He's, he's being guarded by all those soldiers. There's just no way, you know. No way he could get out, right? She kept insisting. And it was so. And they said, well, it must be his angel. It's unclear exactly what they are meaning by that. It must be his angel. I say there's some evidence that Judaism had held to guardian angels. There's, there's The rabbis talk about that, guardian angels, that could assume a person's bodily shape. So... Maybe that's what they were thinking. Maybe it's his angel that you saw who's assumed his shape or something. Who knows? We don't know exactly what they're referring to. But they don't have much faith in their own praying, do they? Verse 16, But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James... And the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Now, this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is the half-brother of Jesus. This is the, the James who writes the epistle, uh, James, the epistle that we have, James. James seems to have become the leader of the church. Not Peter, as we might think. Uh, but it seems to be James, because as we go further in the book of Acts, uh, when we get to Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, remember there's a controversy in Acts 15 about whether Paul's Gentile converts are really saved or not. Because he's just gone out there and he's evangelized a bunch of pagans and he's told them about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but they're not circumcised, they're not keeping the law. Are these people really saved or not? And they come back to Jerusalem to talk about that. And so people get up and speak. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, they speak and so forth. And Peter gets up and speaks. Uh, Barnabas and Saul speak in chapter 15, verse 12, and so forth. Peter speaks earlier. But then it says, uh, uh, then it says, when they had finished, verse 13, James spoke up. And James seems to be the final speaker. He seems to be heading, he seems to be the pastor of the church. That seems to be true in Acts chapter 21. We'll see there that Paul comes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And he's brought an offering for the churches. He's been collecting money that he talks about in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And he comes back, and it says there when he comes back, he arrived at Jerusalem... The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. And all the elders were present. Also in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul calls him a pillar of the church. 
of Jerusalem. So he seems to be, uh, Jesus' half-brother seems to be the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Verse 18, In the morning there was no small commotion about the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Well, sure, absolutely. He, he, uh, they have to execute him because he's not believing this fuddy-duddy story about he just walked out of prison, right? Yeah, right, yeah. Okay, he just walked out of prison. Yeah, we believe that. One. Yeah, he walked through walls. Somebody had to help him. And it's one of you, and we're going to execute you. But it says that... Uh, we didn't mention back in verse 17 that Peter left for another place. Uh, and I mentioned here on the top of page 39, we don't know exactly where Peter went. Many people think he went on some sort of itinerant ministry because we saw him earlier. He was on a kind of an itinerant ministry in Joppa, then he goes to Caesarea and so forth. Uh, he doesn't reappear into Acts 15. We'll see him again there. That brings us to... Uh, that brings us to um, brings us to something. It, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it brings us there. Uh, it doesn't bring us there. It brings us somewhere. Uh, it brings us here. Uh, it brings us to uh, the death of Herod Agrippa I, 1219b through 23. We're told in verse uh, 20... Um, well, it says uh, it says in the latter part of verse 9, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. That's 19b, part of the paragraph there. So Herod is in Judea. He's, he goes back to Caesarea. He's in Jerusalem. He's in Judea. Uh, the the uh, he, he goes back there. That's the, really the provincial capital back in Caesarea. So we're talking about the death of Herod Agrippa, how he died. It says in verse 20, he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon are up here. Now they're not, he's not, he doesn't control that territory, but this is all Roman territory. These are all Roman, Roman territory controlled by the Romans. And so, but he's been quarreling with these people, it says. Uh, these were the, as I say, the leading cities of Phoenicia. We're not told the reason why they've been quarreling. Some speculate that Herod had cut off their food supply. Most of the food, we understand, came from Galilee. Galilee was a very fertile area here in Galilee for growing wheat and so forth, other grains. And it's speculated here that Herod was threatening to cut off their food supply. And so they arrange a meeting with Herod to try to settle this, to try to figure out, and they get... They get the help of his uh, of his uh, assistant with the help of Blastus, we're told here. So let me read this. It says, uh, He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So... This is where the idea comes that maybe he had cut it off or threatening to cut it off for some reason and they had this quarrel. On the appointed day, 
Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Uh, as I say, on the appointed day, the day the Phoenicians were to meet with Herod was, according to Joseph, a Josephus, a special feast day. So when we talked about this Jewish historian, Josephus, who lived during the time of Christ during the first century, he has a great deal of detail. I was just reading it this past week, just looking at Josephus. He has a tremendous amount of detail here about what happened at this particular point. So he also records this incident, and he mentions that this was a special feast day, according to him. So he delivers this address, and they shouted, verse 22, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Uh, that's all the Bible says. He was eaten by worms and died. Josephus says in his historical account that this was uh, some sort of uh, roundworm infection, he claims. He said he died five days after the, the attack. So this is one of those questions where, you know... <laughs> We're, we're looking at Josephus' account, we're looking at the biblical account, they can be harmonized, and we, we just don't know how much we should harmonize. We believe the Bible is inspired and errant and without error. We don't believe that about Josephus, but we don't think Josephus just made things up here. So it could be that these are you know exactly the same in the sense that Josephus says he got this attack and then he died. The Bible says he was struck down, it was the providence of God, and he was eaten by worms and died. It doesn't say he died right that day, so it may be Josephus is right. I don't know whether he is or not, but Josephus says he got this disease, struck down, and died five days later. So that's very, very, very possible. But we come to this final uh, summary statement, verse 24, um, that we've seen these some, but the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Well, that brings us to the end of the first 12 chapters, except for verses 25 and 26. I thought I would just tell you a little bit about, uh, if you're willing to come back next semester, what prize will there be offered for the person who <laughs> who endures to the end there? <laughs> some, there ought to be some sort of crown, shouldn't there? <laughs> Well, we're going to be looking at, uh, we've looked at the Christian mission to the Jewish world, 242 through 1224. We're going to be looking at the, the Christian mission to the Gentile world, 1225 through 2841, which is really the rest of the book. And so this is really just about the Apostle Paul. We're now shifted from mostly Peter, you know, and the other apostles in Jerusalem. Everything that follows is strictly just the Apostle Paul, isn't it? It's totally the Apostle Paul. And so we'll be covering that section. Uh, we'll start off with that first missionary journey, 1225 through 1428, and we'll pick up right here in verse 25. You notice in verse 25 it says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, that was that famine relief mission to go down there and take those help for the poor saints in Judea. You remember we talked about in chapter 11, verse 30. Well, this is the consummation of that. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So, and this man, John, also called Mark, remember, is going to go with them 
with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. So what are we going to be covering? We're going to be covering the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul next semester, Lord willing. The first missionary journey, chapters 12, 13, really. uh, 13, 14, I'm sorry, mainly. Then the Jerusalem Council, chapter 15, mainly. The second missionary journey kind of picks up at the end of 15, goes through 18. The third missionary journey, chapter 18 through 21. Then Paul's defenses in Jerusalem, his troubles there. Then he gets in prison in Caesarea, and I just didn't have enough room (laughs) to get to the next point, which was Paul's voyages to Rome. Remember, he goes on that voyage to Rome and shipwrecked and so forth and and so on. So we'll get there. But what we want to do next semester is try to to, uh, explain these journeys and also explain Paul's epistles in light of these journeys. So I think it's very helpful to know exactly when did Paul write the letters he wrote and how do they fit in to the book of Acts. So we'll see that Paul writes his first epistle, the epistle to the Galatians, in A.D. 49 at the end of this first missionary journey and right before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He writes Galatians. And then on his second missionary journey... um, When he's in Corinth, on his second missionary journey, when he's in Corinth, on his second missionary journey, remember he gets the Macedonian call in Acts chapter 16. He goes over to Philippi, then he goes to Thessalonica, and he goes down to Berea and Athens in Acts 17 and Corinth in Acts 18. There in Corinth, he writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So that's his second and third epistle. Remember, he's got 13 that he's writing. And then on his third missionary journey, when uh, he writes uh, First and Second Corinthians and Romans, he writes First Corinthians from Ephesus, then Second Corinthians in Macedonia, and then Romans he writes in Corinth again on his third missionary journey. So that's six of his epistles. And then he uh, goes to Jerusalem, returns there after each one of his visits. He's arrested there. He's in prison. He goes to Rome, uh, Acts chapter 28, and it's from Rome that he writes four epistles, so-called prison epistles. He writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And then that's the end of Acts 28. But fortunately for you, as Paul Harvey said, I'm going to give you the rest of the story. (laughs) I'm going to give you the Acts 29 part, you know. So I'm going to tell you what happened to Paul after that. You didn't know you didn't know that I knew that, did you? What happened to Paul? So we're going to talk about what happened to Paul. We think we know kind of what happened to him. Most people think, and there's some evidence, he went on a fourth missionary journey. And during that journey, uh, he wrote first Timothy and Titus. Then he gets imprisoned again. He gets out of prison in Rome, out of house arrest. He, he, he goes on a fourth missionary journey, goes over to Spain, he comes back to Rome, and he writes Second Timothy, and that's where he is uh, beheaded. So we'll talk about all those things next semester. So that's Acts 29. I think somebody's already used that phrase before. So. Any questions? I have one. Yeah. Um, when uh, 
Paul is uh, giving his testimony to King Agrippa, or mm-hmm. however you say that. Yeah. Is that any relation to that, Herod? Agrippa? That's King Agrippa II on, on that page. If you look at that page, that's the son of King Agrippa I. Okay. So when you see page uh, 37, and you see on the right, the father's right, King Agrippa, the Herod Agrippa II, that is the king that Paul is giving his testimony to. So, in fact, there's some more books over here. If anybody, we won't need these anymore. Yeah. If anybody wants one, yeah. So that's the king. That's King Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II, and he's the fellow who hears Paul's testimony and so forth. Yes, sir. Uh, you had mentioned there uh, that brings tell James, I forget what, but you know, and that he's the half brother of Jesus, writer of the book of James, uh, became leader of the Jerusalem church, uh, etc. And it seems there that there is, you know, there's there's kind of a hint of of, of some kind of difference, uh, but uh, like Acts twenty twenty eight, First Peter five one through five. Uh, seems to say that uh, that uh, elders, bishops, and pastors are the same same group of people. Right, they are. That that group of men in each local church that's the pastoral leadership team, most commonly known in the New Testament as elders. But the thing is, is I noticed something some time ago when I read a uh, historic theology by somebody. Uh, they. They, they just kind of just went into the second century, and I think it was in the second century, and just just kind of slid into a thing of where of where the bishop, there was one guy, kind of like a James in, in Jerusalem, seemed to be the, the leader amongst leaders, yeah. however you would say, but the bishop, and what he did is in the church kind of recognized him, and, and he had more authority to do the sacraments and whatnot uh, in in the churches above the elders then the out then below him was that body of elders <clears throat> but the New Testament doesn't know that right the New Testament doesn't know that but but by the second century that just seemed to be the common thing right and and I remember uh, reading uh, John R Rice's book on the home and he had mentioned Timothy and Timothy was saying that uh, about Timothy that Paul had appointed him bishop, you know, and you know, and I know he did, of course. But 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 there again, there was there's that thing there that there's that that there's gradations amongst elders, bishops, and pastors. Who really, you know, that there is what what Wes is just referring to is that in the New Testament, uh, the same term, uh, bishop or overseer, bishop overseer. The same term, bishop, elder, and pastor, they're used interchangeably of the same people, the same person. So we could call Ken, Pastor Ken, Bishop Ken, or Elder Ken. So when you get out the night, call him Bishop Ken, please. <laughs> and, and, and that's a perfectly biblical title. It's a perfectly biblical title. He the likes per- Kenny better. Kenny better, okay. <laughs> you do that, okay. What, what Wes is referring to, in the second century, there became a distinction between the bishops and the elders, and the bishop became higher up. 
So in the Episcopalian form of church government, like the Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, they have bishops who are over pastors or priests or whatever, you know, and they have, so they have this hierarchy. But there's no there's no New Testament basis for that. They are they're clear clearly they are the same office. They're just different descriptions of the same office in the New Testament church. Do you think possibly we got some of our polity from the Roman Catholic Church in the sense of the idea of a parish? The, the parish, you know, and the parish that, that a professional guy has to get in, get sent in from outside to, you know, to, to run it, you know. And whereas, you know, again, the New Testament just doesn't have that. But I think but, I should be the Bishop of Detroit, really. That, Baptist. That's what I want to be. The Bishop of Detroit. How many are for that? There it is. Bishop of Detroit. You have to ask Some Baptists put a big emphasis on the pastor. Yeah. And and really, really, sorry, folks, the New Testament doesn't know that. Yeah. It doesn't. And and but but. We're, we seem to get our quality somewhat from the Roman Catholic Church. Well, not necessarily. We, you know, there's nothing wrong with with having a senior pastor. You know, it, you're, it, naturally, you're going to have one person who's going to have uh, more respect, more responsibility, who is going to do the majority of the teaching in, right. in a church. But you can have other pastors, associate pastors, assistant pastors, and so forth in the same church. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes. Well, like he said. The Holy Spirit says, "Set me Barnabas and Saul uh, for yeah. the work I had for them." Did you hear anything about me in there about the Bishop Combs? Or I, <laughs> I you did. Well, we tried. <laughs> All right, let's stop here. When you can ask, okay, I'm sorry. I, I was just curious why the New Testament isn't set up with his uh, missionary. Letters he wrote following in that order. Yeah. Why is it Romans and then? Well, you couldn't do it exactly unless you divided the book of Acts up. Yeah. That would be the problem. You'd have to divide it up. So you could. In fact, people have made Bibles like that. Chronological. There's a Bible called a chronological Bible where everything is put in chronological order. So you couldn't do that. But it would divide up the book of Acts, and that's the problem. The way the order is in the New Testament is it's actually by length. The first epistle Paul wrote was Galatians, but it's not the, it's Romans. That's the longest. And then 1 Corinthians, 2 So it goes by length. It is how it's kind of set up there in the New Testament. It's just the way they were gathered. There's, there's no inspired order of the way the books were gathered together. You can go to like Bible Gateway and uh, read the Bible chronologically. Chronologically. Yeah, I did that when I was recovering from my heart. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's a helpful thing. Well, we, we, we want to try to do that next semester just to see where those epistles fit in there. Right. In, in the order. That'll be helpful. Yeah, I found it very informative. Yeah. So what do they do like, uh, and where books are the same as the other, just somebody else's version of it? Like uh, the first four books of the New Testament. They're oh. all wrong. Do you see what I mean? So when they... How did they determine Matthew, Mark, yeah, Luke, and yeah. John? So how would you do that if it was in chronological? Well, actually, some manuscripts don't have that order. There are some Greek manuscripts that have a different order that, that don't have that. But generally, that's been the traditional order. 
Matthew is the longest. It's thought that Mark sort of gives a summary of Matthew. Luke gives Paul account, and John is thought to be written maybe later, the last one. And so it's usually by time. It's thought that maybe Matthew was written first, some have thought. Mark is listed as, he's thought to be, you know, and Peter mentions Mark, Paul mentions Mark. Uh, Historically, he's thought to be kind of a secretary to to Peter and so forth. And so his is usually thought of as kind of a, a summary, a shorter version of the gospel than Luke. So it's really tradition. It's just tradition. Now, Acts fits naturally there because you want to, you know, yeah. you know. But it is, it's probably hard. I remember when I was just a boy going to Sunday school and I wasn't saved, but they would read, that we'd always read each week a section from the Gospels and a section from the Epistles. I couldn't make heads or tails. You know, what is this Ephesians? I know about Jesus and, you know, his miracles and you read the Gospels, most people don't understand, but what is this Ephesians nonsense? What has that got to do with anything? I couldn't... If you don't understand the book of Acts, you can't really make sense of the epistles, as we said. You have to really understand Acts to make sense of the epistles. So we'll try to do that next semester.